On October 11, 1985, Palestinian-American activist Alex O'Day opened the door to the Orange County offices of the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee. He served as its West Coast Regional Director, but the moment he turned the doorknob, a bomb went off. 36 years later, his assassination remains officially unsolved. But O'Day's family thinks the United States government knows more than it wants to admit. I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. It's Thursday, October 28th, 2021. Nearly 40 years after O'Day's killing, one of the first police officers on the scene is now publicly speaking about it. We'll hear from him and talk to my colleague, Gabriel San Roman, who has followed the investigation into O'Day's killing for over a decade. And we'll also hear from O'Day's oldest daughter and the voice of Alex himself. Alex O'Day was born in 1944 to a Catholic family in what's now known as West Bank. He migrated to the United States in 1972, where he quickly became a prominent Palestinian activist. But critics dismissed him as an apologist for terrorism. Well, the thing is, by calling the Palestinian leadership a bunch of murderers, that's not a very kind words for people who are determined and fighting for the liberation of their homeland for regaining their rights to self-determination in their homeland. The PLO is recognized by the majority, if not all Palestinians who live in Israel proper, on the West Bank, and in exile. That was Alex O'Day from an interview on Pacifica Radio on August 22nd, 1985. O'Day's assassination drew condemnation from Jewish civil rights groups and galvanized Arab-American ones. A statue of him now stands in front of the Santa Ana Public Library within walking distance of where he lost his life. Gabriel San Roman writes for Times OC, which is part of the Los Angeles Times. He has followed the investigation into O'Day's assassination for over a decade. Gabriel, welcome to the Times. It's always nice to be on. I have to admit, I did not even know about the O'Day case until I became a reporter, even though I know that statue. So, like, if you're walking through Santana, you see this big, you know, very serious statue of a man and you think, oh, he must be either some Roman or maybe a Mexican because Santana is such a Mexican city. And then you go and you see the name Alex O'Day. Who who is he? So it's almost like his case is a ghost in Santana. It's there. But the people who remember it are mostly gone. Absolutely. And that statue plays that role in a sense because it casts like a ghostly apparition over the city. And then two, it also just remains there for people to inquire and ask questions. Um, but yeah, you know, it's it's this case from 1985. It's 36 years old now. And surprisingly, it doesn't go away. New generations will learn about him even above and beyond the Arab American community. I think the Latino community in Santana has learned a lot about Alex Aude in the last 10 years. And I think it's because of that persistent, unapologetic push for justice that continues against the odds, against what seems politically possible. What does the U.S. government officially say about the assassination of Alex Aude? Well, the U.S. government doesn't say a whole lot. The FBI has been the lead agency in the murder investigation since 1985. And basically what they do year after year, every October 11th, 
is reassure the Arab American community that the investigation is a priority, that it is ongoing. And what they don't say is who they believe to be the authors of the crime. They have never publicly named the suspects, if there are any, uh, that they have, and investigative journalism suggests that they do. I mean, they have a $1 million reward that has been promoted since about 1996 for information leading to a conviction of the crime. But it's just a very peculiar purgatory for the case, and it doesn't seem to break with any new developments over the course of the past few decades. So there's understandably a lot of cynicism within the Arab American community, but some of my most recent journalism suggests, and it looks like the FBI has been, at least in the early onset of the investigation, pretty active in terms of trying to prosecute, but they're stymied. And according to my interview with retired Lieutenant Hugh Mooney, it wasn't the FBI in 1996 that basically wasn't proactive. It was the State Department official in his recollection that said, we need to look at the bigger picture of U.S.-Israeli relations, and this case is going nowhere. There's a lot of speculation about Ode's killer, but this is speculation that also comes from government statements and actions that sometimes contradict each other. In 2016, for instance, the Department of Justice said that the Ode family was actually victims of Robert Manning. Who's he? Robert Manning was one of three Jewish Defense League members that had been discussed privately, according to my reporting and others, in connection with the Audi bombing. Never has he been officially named as a suspect. We can't even say that. He was extradited in 93 from Israel to the United States, and he stood trial for a mail contract bombing. He was a hitman in a sense and sent a mail bomb at the behest of, of the person who paid for the crime. And unfortunately, Patricia Wilkerson, a secretary in Manhattan Beach, opened up the package and the bomb detonated and it exploded and killed her. So he is serving a life sentence for that crime. A retired FBI agent wanted to question him in the Aude case. And essentially he denied having been a member of the JDL, which was an extremist, Jewish uh, group founded by the late Rabbi Mir Kahani. And essentially, he says, I know nothing. I did nothing. So he's still in Phoenix, Arizona, serving out his uh, prison sentence. So why then does the United States government and Department of Justice say that the O'Day family is a victim of Robert Manning? If they're not saying anything officially that Manning has anything to do with the killing of Alex O'Day? It's just this really peculiar legal predicament. It makes no sense, right? The American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee, which is the group that Alex Aude belonged to and was the West Coast Regional Director for, they are also deemed by the DOJ, as they told me, as victims of of Mannings. And how can that be? It, It clears the way, that classification, internal classification, clears the way for Helena O'Day to speak at the parole hearing as she did in 2018 in person in Phoenix and then also in 2020 remotely. And the ADC president is also able to address the parole hearing in those years too as well as a victim of Manning's. But he's never been indicted. He's never been charged. He's never been convicted of that 1985 office bombing in Santa Ana that killed Alex Aude. So it's a it's a contradiction. It's a it's a paradox. It just doesn't make any sense. 
What other hints have come out over the years about how much the U.S. government knows about the identity of O'Day's killers? It's been pretty well reported for the course of 30 plus years. Again, what I was able to do was corroborate a unnamed anonymous source recounting of the scene in 85 in Santa Ana, where the FBI and LAPD Joint Terrorism Task Force members descended on the scene via helicopter, probably pretty dramatically and a little unusual for an Orange County city like that. They got off and they told uh, Lieutenant or Hugh Mooney at the time, he was the acting captain that day. And at the command center, one of the persons in the group of four basically said, these are the people that we've been trailing, flying from New York to LA. They were lost at LAX and um, the three names have been spoken of privately and then publicly in journalism. It's Andy Green, who now goes by Baruch Ben Yosef, Keith Israel Fuchs, and then Manning. So it's been an open secret who the investigation has looked at. And again, the FBI, according to the lawsuit documents that I referenced earlier, wanted to question, and according to their field director that I interviewed a few years back, did question Manning about the Aude crime. So at the bare minimum, you can call Manning a person of interest. And then with the parole hearings, he's the victimizer of the organization and the family. But in terms of the criminal conviction, something's getting in between, something's in the middle. The ADC has long wanted to see the extradition agreement between the U.S. and Israel. And with regards to Manning, to see if there's answers there as to why that gap exists. Robert Friedman was a Village Voice journalist and wrote an op-ed in the Los Angeles Times in 1990 where he was in Israel and basically saw Green and Manning at that time and said, they're here. You can, they're living freely in these Israeli settlements. Um, one was, at that time, it was um, also, it was, a, it was a particular settlement that followers of, of Kahani would live in. And, you know, basically they couldn't be arrested if they were in the settlements. They had to be in Israel proper. Um, but, you know, Friedman said you can find them there too. So it's not a secret who has been discussed in connection with the case. And it's not a secret, and it hasn't been a secret, where they are. And with regards to Manning, his whereabouts are well known. He's incarcerated in Phoenix, Arizona. We'll have more after this break. Gabriel, you mentioned uh, Lieutenant Hugh Muni. He was one of the first people there on the scene uh, at the site of O'Day's assassination. What did he tell you about that day? One of the challenges with reporting a cold case that is 36 years old is that people that have the institutional knowledge and firsthand experience of the case and the investigation are disappearing. They're passing away. And that's true of a lot of people from the Orange County side of things. You had Charlie Stumpf, who was the commander or lead of the bomb squad for the Orange County Sheriff's Department. He had his team comb the scene of the office on 17th Street in Santa Ana, and they reconstructed the bomb like a big jigsaw puzzle. He passed away. The lead investigator on the case where Santa Ana PD was concerned was Farrell Buckles, and he was the one that had firsthand knowledge up until his retirement in 1996. What was unique about Hugh Mooney is that he was the area commander of that part of the city. 
and a deputy chief dispatched him to take control of the scene. So he was there within 20 minutes and he witnessed the FBI's arrival within the hour. These guys come out and they come walking over to us and there's a couple of uh, FBI agents and a couple of uh, LAPD uh, Joint Terrorist Task Force mm -hmm. members. And uh, they came up and uh, they told us that they'd been tracking a couple of guys from New York out to mm -hmm. LA and they lost them at LAX and they were probably responsible for the bombing. And at that time, I think they gave us the names of uh, Green and Manning. And really, he has a firsthand experience of that scene. It was a big case in Santa Ana, very high profile. And of course, it's a crime of international implications. Um, but he went up into the uh, office. He remembers seeing the destruction and devastation. He remembers the scene very vividly and what he did. And so that's, you know, for historical posterity, it's necessary to get someone like Hugh Mooney on the record. And that's the other challenge in this case is that because it's an open case, a cold case, and there's still, at least on the surface, an active investigation, people with knowledge are hesitant or do not have the clearance to speak openly about it. So Hugh Mooney is very valuable in that regard. And he definitely offers new details into that day and the investigation that followed. Lieutenant Mooney's been retired for nearly 20 years now, but the O'Day's case has always weighed on him. The reason we have laws is to punish people to prevent them from doing that again, or is prohibit, you know, kind of a warning to others, look, you know, we have laws about this. So when people avoid prosecution, it's annoying. I can't, I'm not going to lose sleep over it. I'm not going to cry about it. It happens sometimes, but geez, we had at one point 57 warrants for guys that were, had fled to Mexico. So mm -hmm. we knew they were down in Mexico. A lot of them, we knew their addresses, but this is big government and they don't care about the little people. They're yeah. insignificant, so they but don't matter in the big picture. From your experience, first-hand <clears throat> knowledge of, of the conversations that happened on the scene and in 1994, um, you know who did it, you know how they did it, and you know you knew where they were. Yep where they came from, where they went. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all that was known. Mm -hmm. Everything was known. It was a very solid case, you know, easy to prosecute. He shared with me that when he would walk from the Orange County Superior Court in Santa Ana to the Orange County District Attorney's Office in the rhythm of his work days, he would pass by the Aude statue and that kind of served as a reminder to him of this unsolved murder mystery, if you will. And he's always felt that it was, in, you know, higher up government institutions that got in the way of a very easily prosecuted case. So it always kind of had a thorn in the side element to it. And it wasn't just the statue. What is interesting is when that statue was first dedicated in 1994 on what would have been uh, Alex Aude's 50th birthday, uh, Mooney worked that. And so you had Mooney, he said it was a light security day, but it was acrimonious because Irv Rubin, who is this bellicose leader of the JDL, uh, was across the street in Santa Ana, across the street from the statue dedication and was basically berating the family and the people in attendance of the dedication. Um, and the FBI was there too as well, just to keep tabs on everything. So 
you know, the case had a way of coming up. So it, it, it definitely weighed on him on that day in 1994, in April, when he worked security for the statue dedication. And then in 1996, he goes with Farrell Buckles to the FBI field office in L.A., where he got a front row seat in how the investigation was stymied in his recollection by the State Department. And so he has those memories in mind and he's open to speaking about his experience with the case and what he has seen. And as he mentioned to me, he expresses remorse for the family because they have not been delivered justice for 36 years. Alex Aude had three daughters at the time of his death, his murder, and they were very young and he never got to see them grow and get married and live their lives. And that gnaws at a lawman who likes to feel the satisfaction of justice being delivered and a case being closed. And surprisingly, it was really unprompted that he deemed uh, Aude a man of peace. Um, Aude was definitely the mere opposite of, of Irv Rubin. He was not bellicose. He was not boisterous. He was very soft-spoken and uh, very eloquent in his media appearances, but he was a man of peace in that regard. If he found things that were disagreeable about his politics and stances on Palestine and Israel, it was very hard to hate Alex Aude, unless, of course, you were embroiled in the, you know, JDL extremist mindset. Um, so, you know, he expressed very forthrightly that he believed him to be a man of peace above all, no matter what disagreements there may be politically. And uh, it's just another case of justice denied and justice delayed. Aude's case is something that local politicians have never forgotten, though. Uh, former Congress member Loretta Sanchez pressed the House of Representatives repeatedly to investigate his assassination. And then recently, Congress member Lu Correa has continued that work. Absolutely. I spoke to uh, Congressman Correa about his resolution, House resolution. And what it seeks to do is basically enter Alex Aude's memory as a matter of congressional record and recognize him as a victim of domestic terrorism. Um, and as the congressman mentioned, it also acts to carry on with uh, Sanchez's work before she left the office. And it also seeks to renew attention into the investigation. So it would be very interesting to see how the case develops and going forward, how all of this is going to coalesce because you have the ADC pressing the Attorney General uh, Merrick Garland to name suspects to provide details about the case. Well, at the same time, uh, in Congress, you know, Rashida Tlaib has also co-sponsored that House resolution. And so there's there's motion on this case after 36 years. Where it all leads to remains to be seen. But it's easy to be cynical because there has been concerted efforts to renew interest and not let the case grow cold in memory in action. But what really changes at the end of the day? It's getting closer, but we'll have to wait and see. What's important is that the three folks, I mean, many people have passed on who've been involved in the case, but the three people who have been of interest internally in the investigations are still alive. So justice remains a possibility. Finally, what is it about the Aude case that has stayed with activists decades after his killing? It's always been important to the Arab American community. But uh, when I wrote about his case 30 years later, 
The younger generation of Arab American activists in Orange County and elsewhere throughout the United States almost forgot about him. They had to relearn about him. He was just getting started. He was 41. It's hard to find audio clips of his appearances in the media or video clips because he was really just getting started. He joined the organization only for a few years. And, you know, before that was, you know, basically also a poet and a lecturer at Orange Coast College and graduated with a master's degree in political science from Cal State Fullerton. So he was a family man who just started a family and an activist who was really starting to shine uh, and, and come into his own before his life was taken. So the new generation has had to kind of relearn his legacy. Over in, in the West Bank, he's never been forgotten. He's a hero in Jifna, Palestine, a martyr. And he is basically seen in that role, but also as a native son. Someone that if you travel to that area, you're going to hear stories about how he was as a person. So his memory is spread between Southern California and the West Bank. Over here, there's a bit of a renaissance, if you will, um, because the the new generation of, of Arab American activists are basically taking the baton from from their predecessors. And it will be up to them to continue to press for justice in the case. So really what we're seeing is a generational, like I said, passing of the baton. And we're going to see that level of advocacy continue. And in my work, I always try to not just have a focus on the case and the investigation and the persons of interest, if you will, or the suspects. But it's always important not just to ask who killed Alex Aude, but it's always important to remember who was Alex Aude. Gabriel, thank you so much for this interview. Thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity to speak about this important case. Next, we'll hear from Alex O'Day's daughter, Helene O'Day, after this break. My name is Helena O'Day. I am the daughter of Alex O'Day. I remember him coming home from work. I remember all the social events that we used to go to a lot for him and stuff like that. We used to walk around Saturday mornings like that was our thing. I remember he would be like, okay, come on, let's all go. And he would take my sisters and I for little walks or um, he taught my sister and I how to swim. So everybody just, a lot of their questions are, do you remember him? Or, you know, they would tell me how great he was that he used to know him, or they would tell me a story about him that they remember, which is always nice, because of course, I didn't get a lot of those memories. I was only seven. My mom did try to shelter us from a lot of the bad stuff that is out there in the media. And so she didn't want us to hear anything bad or anything like that. Like, she really didn't want us to know about the details. But, of course, as you get older, you start, there's Google and Internet. And the older I got, the more involved I started getting. And 
looking into it more now. <laughs> because I never saw, honestly, to tell you the truth, I never saw how bad the blast was and I always tried to hide it. Even when I search, I try to skip over that part because I know, but it wasn't until I saw how bad of a blast it was that the pain that my dad had to endure. It's heartbreaking to know that I know he did it for his country. I know he did it for people and his community and just, he wasn't trying to hurt anybody. And just to see how bad of a blast that took him out was, was actually just hard to, to focus on to deal with. My mom was also very, very young. I want to say maybe 25, 26 at the time. So, you know, to lose her husband and now she has us three to take care of, I'm sure it was overwhelming for her. She has never let us go without and she never had us feel like we didn't have a second parent there. Mm -hmm. She was always the mom and the dad. On father-daughter dances, we would definitely take her. <laughs> but um, as kids, I don't think she wanted to get involved um, only because she wanted to protect us. You know, um, made, been afraid that what if she gets involved, then they'll lose both parents. And she didn't want to do that. I do go to some parole hearings. Um, and actually, that is a constant little bit of a worrisome argument between my husband and I. Um, he's terrified. Well, what if something happens to you? What if they come after you? How much longer do I have to live worrying? You know, he's just worried about the what ifs because we don't know. You know, we don't know what's going to happen. Thankfully, I have not yet received any kind of threat or anything like that. There was a press conference at the statue in Santa Ana years ago. The FBI put a reward of a million dollars for anybody knowing anything about my dad's murder, you know, trying to open up the case. So the FBI uh, made that announcement and a uh, guy stood up in the crowd. And before I knew it, I had guards in front of me. I look over to my family and everybody's guarded. And this guy stands up and walks my direction and tells me, I shed no tears for Alex O'Day. He deserved to die. And that was the first time ever that I realized, what did he do to you that you had to be so hateful? Did my dad ever do anything, you know? But of course, I couldn't ask that question, but um, I just, it just always made me wonder, like, why the hate? My dad never hurt a soul. He never 
did anything to anybody. And this guy just straight looked me dead straight in my face, my eyes, to tell me that my father deserved what he got. I want to say I think it was 19. It's hard. It's hard. I can hear his voice still to this day. And that's 20-some years ago. And I can hear that guy's voice in my head. I'm with the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee, which is the committee that my dad was the West Coast Regional Director for. So they have been um, standing with us all these years, and they they won't let his memory fade away. Um, every year we do have a memorial banquet in honor of my dad. We give someone an award with the same activism or dedication that my dad had. Um, so, I mean, I think every year we just keep it going um, for my dad. I mean, he was just a great man. And I'm sad that the, the community and my family had to go through such a tragic loss um, from losing somebody so great. Um, he never wanted to hurt anybody. He just wanted peace. And I have his book right here, but most of it is in Arabic. Um, yeah, I, I really don't. I did have some of it, um, which I can look for it right now, actually. It's translated. Let me see. Dedicated to the spirit of my mother, who left me without saying goodbye. To my lovely wife. Norma, my partner in this difficult life, to the eyes of my children dreaming of returning, to every Arab who longs to return as the pilot, to the oldest bouquet that I wrote and an offering of love and peace, Skandar Odeh, 1983. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, how the Mexican holiday Dia de los Muertos became so popular in the United States. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Melissa Kaplan, and Ashley Brown. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editors are Shawnee Hilton and Lauren Rabb, and our theme music is by Andrew Eatman. A special thanks to Pacifica Radio. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news in this month. Gracias. <laughs>